0: Just to to start off with, the focus in our report, available on all good websites, is on recent migrants, and everybody here knows all the problems of definitions, you know, so broadly we're saying people who've arrived in the last five years, but on the whole, you actually don't know, um, unless you actually go and interview people, as you know, nobody walks around with a little banner on their head saying, I am a recent migrant. But insofar as you can rely on the statistics, um, at least three-quarters of recent migrants end up in the private rented sector. I say at least because statistics only measure the official migrants. We all know there are migrants who aren't measured, and the chances are that 99% of them are probably in the private rented sector. Um, Also, a lot of people are in a... um, areas where, how do people define them? So people might be in student hostels and may not even be picked up on the figures. Do you call a student hostel the private rented sector? A lot of people will not be buying their own homes, but maybe in the owner-occupied sector because they're coming and joining other family members um, and maybe aren't official tenants, but are unofficial tenants. Um, So what do you call them? So the vast majority of recent migrants are in some form of private rented sector Um, the ones who are in the social rented sector quite a lot of those may well be uh, refugees and asylum seekers because of course there are uh, legal issues and a number of them may have ended up either being housed by a local authority or at some point (coughs) after they've become a refugee um, particularly in the north a lot of them might have got access through homelessness legislation if they have children think the key thing is that we all know migration isn't going to go away, even if it goes down a bit, and most migrants are going to go on using the private rented sector. So this is an issue that won't go away. We can't say it doesn't matter what the issues are now because it's going to change. Looking at the private rented sector, many people live in poor quality lettings. Um, that's a house in multiple occupation in Southwark. Uh, Photo by local environmental health officer. Um, And uh, very often that's overcrowded. Now, um, at the very worst, there are reports um, of some hot bedding. If people don't know that, it's when you have one person in the bed, perhaps during the day, and then they go off to the night shift and somebody who worked during the day uses the bed in the night. You get people who don't understand their tenancy agreements. People who haven't got one. Obviously you can get quite high rents, very often there is no cash book, sorry, no rent book, and people would have no idea of deposit protection schemes. And as well as being (coughs) overcrowded, accommodation can be unsuitable. Now caravans, farm out buildings, beds in sheds, all these things can be good accommodation. There are very good caravan sites. Uh, Equally, you all think about beds in sheds, but actually... Quite a lot of the so-called beds in sheds, um, you know, converted outbuildings may well be a lot nicer than HMOs. But there's also a lot of unsuitable accommodation, uh, caravans which can be fire hazards, particularly um, the way you do and don't use the gas. They can get very, very damp in winter. Attics. I remember Manchester um, environmental health officer telling me about one. There were about ten, all joined together, but there was no fire escape because there was only one entrance. Ten houses back at the other end of the road, and. Uh, Obviously, it's all highly unsuitable. Uh, And the other issue is you often get a lot of houses converted to HMOs that weren't HMOs before. Now, this doesn't mean the accommodation isn't any good, but it does mean that you're seriously changing an area. Uh, And this is in Goul, which is an example where you've got a lot of people, particularly from Poland and around there, um, converting, you know, terraced housing. And you ended up suddenly with an awful lot more people living in a street of terraced housing than had been there two or three years before. And, and that can cause real issues for an area. Everything from parking to rubbish to you know, just having more people. And then that causes tensions. Although we did lots of work for two years, we do have to admit that from an academic point of view, the amount that's really known is pretty small. Um, compared to what we know about the social rented sector and the people who live in it, We don't know about the private rented sector, um, and obviously we know even less about recent migrants. But the (coughs) things we do know is that with working migrants, a lot of the problems are around housing and jobs being linked. Very often people find that it's the employers or the agent who's finding you employment who also finds you the accommodation, and that makes it harder to complain. Uh, Because whether your house is actually directly tied to your work or not, it's all linked in. And if you've come as a migrant to work, the last thing you want to do is risk losing your job. The other issue is that a lot of migrants are moving around a lot and also they work very long hours. So a lot of people just want a bed. They're not looking for a home, certainly not initially. And when it comes down to it, they'll put up with a lot, as long as it's cheap, as long as they can get to their work from it. And they're not actually longing to become a member of a community if they're going to move on next week. So people will also put up with things that we might think they shouldn't. So you've got two types of people quite often, whereas people who've decided they're going to stay longer or who know they want to stay longer from the beginning, like a lot of uh, refugees, probably want much more secure and better housing from much earlier. um, And they've got different sets of trade-offs in their minds. Um, and if they're looking for more secure housing, there's quite complex pathways in for a lot of people because they haven't often got their own money. Just going on finally into the future, it's a bit uncertain at the moment. It's both interesting and worrying. Private renter has grown hugely again in the last 10 years. It's at least doubled in size. The pressures are increasing all the time. We kind of seem to expect the private rented sector to solve all the housing problems in the world at the moment. You know, if you can't afford to buy, you go into the private rented sector if you're homeless. You now can be put in the private rented sector by councils. And it's expected to absorb all these people and all the migrants. And, of course, you can't expand housing that fast. Housing doesn't move as fast as people do. So there are big tensions and in some areas still massively upward pressure on rents because there's so many people chasing so little accommodation. And then we've got the arrival of the local housing allowance and we don't know exactly what that will do. But if you look at it from a migrant's perspective it's quite interesting because this upward pressure on wages is a problem because a lot of recent migrants are earning very low wages. So the rents are going up faster than their wages. On the other hand a lot of them are reliant on their wages and not on benefit. So compared to some of the housing allowance recipients and people who are entirely reliant on that, migrants may actually have cash in hand to pay their landlord. So there may well be some landlords who actually discriminate in favour of migrants um, for that reason. So it's going to affect people very differently, but it will change local dynamics. And then, of course, when universal benefit arrives... We have no idea what is going to happen. So I will now turn over to Neil to talk a bit about the kind of responses we found that worked better than others. Thanks, Joe. I think it's worth a
1: couple of things I'd like to say before I sort of crack on, really. The first is that the vast majority of private landlords and the vast majority of the private rental sector is good quality accommodation and what we're looking at here in many many areas is the very, very bottom end of the market and a very, very small minority of the private renter sector. Um, because of the size of the private renter sector, of course, that number is still quite a sizable sizeable, sizeable number. And I think it's important to emphasise the work that land associations and local authorities have done, particularly over the last 10-15 years, to increase and improve standards in the private renter sector from where it was 20-25 years ago. Um, I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is that one of the key um, tenets of the Housing Migration Network was that we didn't want to suggest solutions that weren't realistic. We wanted to work with the grain of um, the private renter sector so that hopefully... The, the recommendations and the solutions that we we raised in our report were actually achievable and doable. Um, we didn't want to have a report that would just sit on a shelf or, you know, sit somewhere stored on a computer and, and not be a benefit to to the sector. So I think looking at how can we actually start to improve the private renter sector from from within. One of the key key areas, and Jill mentioned it, is that particularly with migrants who are living in the private renter sector. There are an awful lot of informal arrangements. Um, so, for, for most people, you know, if you're a, if you're a professional living in the private rental sector, you will have a tenancy agreement. You will your deposit will be protected as it's required to, to be by law. You will know who the landlord <coughs> is. You will probably pay your rent by direct debit or some some other form. It's all it's all regularised. It's all um, you know. It's all clear and transparent. In the migrant with migrant communities, the chances are um, they'll have received a key for the property. Um, as soon as they've received the key, there's an implied tenancy agreement that's been set up, but there are no terms. Um, no, there's no ground rules. Um, there's likely not to be a deposit against um, you know, best practice. If there is a deposit, the chance of it being protected in terms tenancy- of deposit protection scheme are very slim. So one of the things that we, we recommended really was that there's an opportunity to look at producing more standardised paperwork, a simple basic tenancy agreement that can be easily understood by tenants who don't have necessarily a great grasp of the technicalities of the private renter sector um, and also for some landlords who don't want to go to a... Um, a legal station is to get a tenancy agreement. Who don't want to go to their solicitor to to look at some of the, some of the paperwork to try and make sure that we have a, have an agreement that works for that bottom end of the market, so that we don't have unfair terms in the tenancy agreement, and hopefully so that tenancies work work much better. We also felt there was an opportunity to look at how people can access references and how tenants, in particular, can give a reference to a landlord to make it much easier to access good quality um, rented accommodation. Very often the steps to gaining good quality accommodation in the private rental sector are very difficult. Have you got a financial referee, have you got a reference from your previous landlord and so on and so forth. So it's looking at how we can make make that simpler. We also have a lot of variation in the way that local authorities work. Um, Accreditation, which is an approach whereby landlords become accredited um, either working with a a landlord association (coughs) or with a local authority. But there are many, many different schemes. Some schemes accredit the person, the landlord themselves, so they undertake training and they demonstrate their capability to manage properties in the private rental sector. Other schemes look at the property and it's their are property-based schemes and local authority officers actually physically inspect individual properties and say that property meets meets a particular standard. Our view was that unless we have a model scheme that is adopted nationally, um, probably looking at the landlord association schemes that have the widest um, coverage across, across the nation, um, then it's going to be very difficult for... Local authorities and landlords to actually understand what how accreditation is going to work and how it's best best promoted. And I think one of the misnomers in the private renter sector is that letting agents and managing agents offer the best accommodation. Very often that is not not the case. Again, with with the, what the wider private renter sector, there are good letting agents and there are bad letting agents. But just because you are renting property through um, an organisation that has a shop front, looks professional, it doesn't mean necessarily that you are going to be entering into good quality accommodation. And of course, as is the case with all, all areas, um, self-regulation with letting agents works very, very well, but of course, rogue letting agents are not going to engage with any form of Self regulation in the same way that rogue private landlords on their own are not going to engage in um, self regulation or accreditation. So there's a need for alternative approaches. But of course, we might well need to give people a nudge. I think there has historically been an assumption that what the private renter sector needs is more regulation. And I think one of the key points of the Housing Migration Network felt was actually, no, we don't need more regulation. There's enough regulation out there. It's about how we focus the regulation on the right people, the right properties. How do we deal with the rogue rogue landlords? And it's about using the regulation that we have innovatively. And it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Different local authority areas will need different approaches. There will be certain areas that won't be affected necessarily by migrants coming into those those communities there'll be areas for example in London where they're well used to receiving migrant communities over a long period of time and their services are set up to to deliver that there are other areas, particularly rural areas, where they won't have seen migrant communities come in there'll be a large influx due to um, the seasonal agricultural businesses or now the the all year round agricultural business and that will be a real shift change that local authorities need to adopt so some of the things that local authorities can look at are the use of licensing powers within, within uh, regulation, and this is where local authorities can set up schemes whereby landlords have to be licensed to operate certain properties in, in their local area. I think there are some caveats with that, particularly there are costs associated with setting up schemes, there are potential for legal challenges, and it doesn't, won't necessarily work... In all in all cases, one of the one of the poor drivers or the the disincentives in the private renter sector is the current housing benefit system, where it appears that landlords um, generally have been seen as almost taking advantage of of the system, and I think there is a need for the government to look at you know landlords as actually being a positive influence in the sector rather than negative influence which they they seem to have adopted of of recent. Community estate agents are a real opportunity whereby communities themselves look to advertise properties within local communities. One of the problems that migrants face is very often they find accommodation through word of mouth. They look on notice boards in in local shops, in, in shop windows and so on and so forth. So very often they are... Acquiring properties and moving into properties with no real good quality advice, no real knowledge about the landlord, no real knowledge about the properties. Community estate agents is a model whereby they can actually regulate themselves, do some simple checks, and make sure that they are promoting good quality landlords within their own their own commun- communities. Tenancy deposit schemes are used by local authorities across the country, and they're generally. Um, a good opportunity to introduce the less able to access private rental sector and the vulnerable to access good quality um, accommodation. One of the things that we can look at though is linking those schemes in with credit unions um, that are then accessible to all vulnerable tenants so they can actually find um, ways of avoiding loan sharks and so on and so forth. And of course there are landlord insurance schemes out there um, that can can help in certain circumstances um, to protect landlords' interests when they are dealing with higher risk rentals. We do want to make sure that we encourage um, a wider use of decent and safe homes. I've mentioned deposit guarantees um, and bond schemes, so this is where local authorities provide financial incentives. They can be really good. There's an issue that local authorities have to deal with around their financial <coughs> risk, so the more, the more financial incentives you hand out to, to private landlords to support tenants then the bigger your financial risk move, moving forward. And Of course any financial incentive for a landlord is only going to work if local authorities provide support to tenants and landlords to ensure that those tenancies are sustainable. We don't, we, the worst thing we can have is tenants going into a, a tenancy and that tenancy failing because then that just increases the cycle of churn in in the sector. Everyone likes a badge, and I think landlords are no different, and the same with tenants. And there are some interesting schemes that are developing across the country um, where landlords become accredited and they get a badge, and they can then promote that to to tenants. And similarly, we can start looking at um, giving tenants badges to say, actually, I'm a good tenant. You know, I haven't defaulted on my rent, I haven't trashed the property. Yeah, you know, my previous landlord thinks I'm a good tenant, but all of those will only work if partnerships are, are are agreed across, you know, local agencies, local areas, and sub-regional areas. And one of the biggest issues that we find, particularly with financial incentives from local authorities, is competition between in in sub-regional areas. So one authority will say, well, we'll give you a two thousand pound bond because the neighbouring authority is only given fifteen hundred pounds and that's not helpful for for the market because then you're, again, you're you're skewing the market. Housing advice, I think it's a key issue for migrant communities. Ordinarily, um, housing advice is linked to homelessness. Local authorities across the country are seeing increased levels of homelessness. That's not going to improve in, in, in the foreseeable future. And very often that means that frontline housing advice services are very much focused on statutory obligations. Um, many local authorities aren't really interested in providing housing advice to those communities um, that they don't see as a priority who aren't coming forward as being homeless. And as Jill mentioned, it's very often the case that migrant communities do not come forward to tell us that they are you know, in housing need, under the threat of homelessness, and so on and so forth. So it's very important that local authorities provide services to give housing advice to migrant communities so that they actually intervene before a point of crisis. And that's very difficult sometimes in hard times to sell to local authorities, but we need to promote that. And it's also about taking those services to the communities. Migrant communities are less likely to come into council services, to engage with council services in council offices. So we need to spread those services out in the community. And of course, have we got appropriate staff, and do they have the knowledge? Probably they've got the knowledge, but do they have language skills? Language skills and language barrier is still a key barrier for local authorities in delivering services across across the board. I think an interesting area is developing links with employers. So in many areas, there are key employers who employ from the migrant community, um, particularly agricultural sector and some of the other... um, manual labour areas. And I think very often employers don't see the benefit of good housing for their, their employees. Um, and we visited um, a large employer in a particular area as part of our, our research and the employer did not really identify the fact that they needed to be interested in where their employers, employees were living, was the accommodation good? Was that impacting on the employee's ability to get to work? Was it impacting on the employee's ability to actually come to work? Were their employees actually going to be leaving their business because their housing was unstable and they were having to leave the area? One of our recommendations is that there's a role for employers to actually be interested in where their employees are living because good housing will provide employers with good employees that will contribute to their business. There are some good examples out there that we can build on. I mean, this, this list is only a very small small number and um, the report has, has a few more. Um, Southwark um, used their Migration Impact Fund a few years ago to develop a project to proactively inspect accommodation used by migrants. And they found um, a large number of properties occupied um, in overcrowded conditions, poor conditions, and so on, so forth, and at the bottom end of, of the market, interesting issue there, of course, was as mm-hmm. soon as the um, migration impact fund um, funding was was removed, then that project has actually stumbled a little bit. So sustainability is key for all of these all, all these projects moving forward, and local authorities need to be clear about exit strategy um, and how do they actually move projects forward. Um, Gould have introduced a licensing scheme. There's about a dozen licensing schemes across the country now. As I said earlier, it's not for everyone um, and it needs to be considered very, very carefully within the local context. East Sussex have produced a housing toolkit for local authorities to use to help them work with (coughs) migrants. There are other toolkits around and about. In Cornwall, West Cornwall, um, has a migrant work and action group where they've actually coordinated their approach to assist migrant workers um, in poor housing conditions. They have particular problems with the rural agricultural businesses um, and migrants occupying caravans on on impromptu caravan sites. HACT have um, worked on a number of projects through their Accommodate programme, which is worth looking at. And there's the Canopy Project in Leeds, which has actually used migrant communities to return empty homes back into use so they can occupy them moving forward and I think that's an example that is likely to grow moving forward so what are the what do we want to, to look at in the future clearly migration needs to become um, a mainstream part of housing policy um, within local authorities both in terms of provision and planning and I think there are many authorities out there for which migration still remains a bit of a blind spot. You know, it's not happening to us, we can't see it, we don't know what's going on, we won't bother looking for it. That needs to be mainstreamed. We need to have a fresh look at the bottom end of the private rental sector. As I mentioned earlier, the vast majority of the private rental sector provides good quality housing. Um, and it's about focusing services on the poor properties right at the very bottom, a very relatively small number. Um, and it's for local authorities to focus their resources on that part of the market rather than almost a relevant regulation of, of good quality accommodation. We need to make sure that the coordination of schemes and priorities across lo- local bodies and national bodies is maintained and we need to build on, on that. The more cross working that we can, we can generate the better. And of course, as Jill mentioned, you know, migrants are overrepresented in the poor um, element of the private renter sector. So we need to make sure that local authorities address that and link to the issues of of social cohesion within their their neighbourhoods. And we need to make sure that we're empowering communities to help themselves. So that's the migrant community. Are we empowering them to come forward, tell us about their problems and seek advice? Are we helping landlords? Are we working with landlords? And importantly, are we also making sure that local neighbourhoods are aware of the complexities and the issues so that we can build um, sustainability within those those neighbourhoods. As Jill mentioned, there's loads more in in the report. Um, And what was really helpful was the report was endorsed by a number of bodies and institutes across all elements of the private renter sector and and organisations that are interested in, in migration moving forward. I think that's it for me.
0: <laughs> There's just one thing we didn't talk about in our speech, which people here may be interested in, and that's all the work that's been done at the moment around the Beds in Sheds um, initiative. So that there is more work being done, but we weren't able to refer to it in the report because it hadn't happened when we published last spring. So um, there is kind of some quite interesting, up-to-date work going on, which hopefully may help move forward in some of the areas.